Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We know that the events of this world are shaking a lot of people up, and that's a good thing. It's causing people to question uh, where their faith really is, if they even have a faith in anything, and causing a lot of people to, to do some soul-searching uh, and to lure willing and hopefully put their faith and trust in Jesus through these events. Lord, we thank you for your word, that even as many are casting it aside and sadly, in a lot of churches today, the Word of God is cast aside. We thank you that it is indeed our way, our truth, and our life. Because Jesus is the Word of God. It will always be relevant. It will always be powerful. It will always change our lives. So Lord, I pray that your Spirit would go forth even now. Work in our hearts, open our eyes and our ears to hear, hear what you have for us this morning, that it may bear real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In a Reader's Digest article published a few years ago, here are some of the dumbest laws that still exist in each state of the U.S. These are real laws still on the books. Within the city limits of Chico, California, it is strictly illegal to build, maintain, or use a nuclear weapon. You know, because a law needed to be established specifically for that to dissuade anyone from doing so. If you managed to escape self-annihilation with said weapon, you then face a $500 fine. Seems fair for almost blowing up the world. Idaho is the only state in the union with a specific and active ban on cannibalism. So if that's up your alley, don't plan on doing it in Idaho. That's the one place you should stay away from. In Prince William County of Virginia, it is illegal to own a skunk as a pet. Not sure why that would be tempting to do in the first place. In a couple of counties in Washington state, it is illegal to poach a Sasquatch with a fine of $1,000 if it's proven you have, in fact, killed Bigfoot. In Kansas, it is illegal to throw a snowball at another person. And in Oklahoma, it's unlawful to wrestle a bear. Although, as the article notes, at that point, that law is the least of your worries. Could you imagine actually trying to arrest someone for breaking any of these laws today? In this morning's passage, the Jewish people, and specifically the Jewish authorities, are using the Sabbath law against Jesus. But they were trying to enforce it for the wrong reasons. And what does this have to do with us today? Well, we're going to find out. If you remember from last week, there was a man by a certain pool just outside of the Jerusalem walls called Bethesda. It looked like this as was uncovered by archaeologists and exactly as John describes it in verse 2 with five porticos or porches. If you remember, we got one, two, three, four, five. We also 
uncovered last week that there was a pagan Greek superstition connected to the area, with the Jewish people attributing the healing quality of the stirring up of the water in these pools to an angel. According to the superstition, as John recounts in verse 4, an angel would stir up the waters and the first one in would supposedly be healed. And like we talked about last week, there is no evidence in scripture whatsoever that this actually happened or this was how God operated. If this was the way God operated, it would be pretty cruel on his part. As the ones who needed the healing the most, such as this man, would always get beat out by someone else. And that's what he explains to Jesus. And so this man lay hopeless on the edge of this pool for almost 40 years years. He thought the only way he would be healed would be in this one way, according to the superstition. But the way he would be healed was beyond anything he could ever imagine. God himself in the flesh, Jesus, showed up, reignited that spark of hope this man still had left, and forced him to put faith in what he said when he said, get up and walk. That man trusted Jesus enough to do just that, and muscles that had atrophied for 40 years suddenly became strengthened, and the man could walk. Jesus only had to say the words, and when this man trusted those words, the miracle happened. But there was a problem, a problem in human minds anyways. The end of verse 9, which we ended just before last week, says this. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 5. We're going to be in the second part of verse 9. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be a Bible located in the pew in front of you. You can turn in that to John chapter 5, second part of verse 9, or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. But we read, now it was the Sabbath on that day. Now, John makes a point of recording that. There's, there, there, there's a, a, a good reason for it. This statement by John is what sets up for part two of what we began last week. The Sabbath day is still observed by Jewish people who care enough about observing it. And it's very much the way most people saw it back in Jesus' day. The general rule was that you were not supposed to do any work. Even today, many Orthodox Jewish people translate and read modern understanding of tasks into the original Mosaic laws connected to, to uh, business, housework, and temple preparation. Now, I'm mentioning these not to mock but to specifically illustrate the extent that a lot of Orthodox Jewish people today go to not working on the Sabbath as seriously as possible. For instance, and I learn a lot when I look these up, you're not allowed to turn off an electric light switch on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to open a letter, apply makeup, open an umbrella, sharpen a pencil, Wear eyeglasses that are not permanently worn, like reading glasses, or turn on or off a range or oven. In fact, some ranges or ovens, you might have seen this on yours, have a Sabbath feature. Have you seen that? Which turns the oven on at a time you set the day before. That's how they get away with it. 
You're not allowed to touch money or checks, scissors, pens, flashlights, a radio, a phone, or a computer. You're not allowed to do or touch any of these things on the Sabbath day. Again, I don't mention these to mock, but to make a point. If these modern-day interpretations are not lawful, then we can very easily understand the Jewish crowd and authorities' reaction to the man picking up the pallet he had been lying on. We read next in verse 10, So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Now, now we can understand how the people's response is not completely out of left field. In fact, in Numbers 15, a man was found gathering and carrying wood for a fire on the Sabbath day and was subsequently stoned to death. And the prophet Jeremiah said, this is what the Lord says, take care for yourselves and do not carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything in through the gates of Jerusalem. You shall not bring a load out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy just as I commanded your forefathers. So on the surface, this would prohibit the man from carrying his pallet. But we have to understand the point of these Old Testament passages. In Numbers, the man is obviously gathering and carrying wood as a form of housework or domestic chore. In Jeremiah, the Lord is commanding Israel to stop carrying items in through the city gates in connection uh, with uh, doing business or carrying items out of their houses in doing housework or chores. We can see the clear difference in what the man in John chapter 5 is doing and what the law was actually prohibiting. The law was actually prohibiting the intention behind the work going on here, either carrying on business or doing household chores, both prohibited in order to physically and spiritually rest on the Sabbath day. But by Jesus' day, legalism had firmly taken root. Instead of looking at the intention of actions on the Sabbath, the specific uh, actions took front and center stage. By Jesus' day, the Pharisees and other religious authorities had tacked on so many other rules that no one even came close to doing any form of work on the Sabbath. We see that same mindset with most Orthodox Jewish people today. So the Jewish crowd, specifically the authorities, well-versed in the Pharisaical way of considering even the tiniest effort, work, and therefore breaking the Sabbath laws, looks at this man just doing what Jesus told him and picking up his pallet and starts saying, Oh, bad, bad man, stop doing that. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, the just healed man doesn't want to deal with any of this drama that was just thrown his way. So he does what classic humanity always does. What does he do? He plays the blame game. Verse 11, not my fault, don't look at me, but he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. In other words, he says, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't look at me. Don't point your finger at me. I'm just doing what this other guy told me to do. Seeing this man just simply acting like any human being 
would flows very easily into the authority's response. Well, then who and where is this guy who told you to do that? We're going to turn on him now. Verse 12. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? We start to see here that the healed man hadn't actually put his faith in Jesus as the Messiah, like the Samaritans or the royal officials' household that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. As noted by one biblical scholar, this is an instance of Jesus performing a miracle without faith being put in him first. Now, why would Jesus do that? Jesus does that to show his grace. That even when the person doesn't deserve it, he will have grace for his own reasons on that person. For all of us, God's grace in opening our spiritual eyes and leading us to put our faith in Jesus for the salvation from our sins and receiving eternal life is just that. Undeserved grace that God has chosen to give us for his own reasons. This undeserved grace should and must lead us to gratefulness. That God would choose to pour out his grace on us and then lead to a desire to live the rest of our lives for him. Jesus, already knowing that the authorities would turn against him and knowing it was not time yet for him to have full-blown confrontations with them yet, slips away into the crowd before anyone, including the healed man, had any clue. In fact, the healed man was so self-absorbed in his new condition, he had no intention of actually thanking the one who healed him and so had no idea that he had even left. We see this in verse 13. But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Well, the drama quickly dies down at that point. If there's no one there to pin the blame on and start grilling, and there's nothing interesting happening anymore. The authorities give the healed man a scowl, turn around and leave, and the crowd quickly disperses. At some point following that, the healed man goes to the temple. And since all the hype around him has died down, Jesus now approaches him and says some curious words. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Imagine saying, Jesus saying those words to you. As noted by biblical scholarship and what we can gather from this sentence by Jesus, apparently this man had committed some kind of grievous sin. So grievous that God plagued him with this illness that rendered him incapable of walking for almost 40 years. Now that adds a whole new angle to this story now, doesn't it? This wasn't just an unfortunate life situation that happened to this guy. He was the very reason why he was in this situation for 40 years. And yet, what we have to see here is that God kept him alive until that very moment for Jesus to have grace upon him and heal him. 
Not only does Jesus have grace upon this guy, but at some point he gives him a warning and a choice. He points out to the man that the whole reason he had suffered that health condition for that long was because of his sin. And if the man doesn't want worse judgment to befall him, he better repent and turn his life around. Now, not all health conditions are judgments for sin, but this one apparently was. And Jesus cared way more about this man's spiritual condition before God than just letting him go on his merry way. Sometimes God will use painful and horrible situations in life to get our attention. They may be God-given discipline for our sin, a natural consequence of our sin, or just a seemingly random event. But in every case, God has a purpose for it. If it's discipline for sin, as was the case for this man, we better recognize it and heed the warning to prevent worse discipline from happening. You might say, why does God discipline us in the, in the first place? Why doesn't he just leave me alone to do as I please? Because, you want to know why? Because God cares way too much about you. That's why. Jesus says in Revelation 3.9, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. It's not just that he disciplines. It's for a purpose, to turn our lives around and repent. Like any good parent would use discipline, God is trying to protect you from worse and protect you from completely destroying yourself. Rather than get angry at God, when we experience painful events, we should take some self-reflection and see if there's any way that it could be divine discipline. In that case, if the Holy Spirit reveals some sin that we're harboring, we need to get that right with God immediately. Again, God cares way too much about you to not keep bringing more and more discipline in your life. In other cases, painful experiences may simply be natural consequences we bring upon ourselves for our sin. Proverbs 21.21 says, No harm happens to the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Just by these everyday decisions we make that dig a deeper and deeper hole for ourselves. This is why God gives us commands and instruction in his word to protect us from these natural results of sin. God's not just some kind of jerk who doesn't want anyone to have any fun. Nor are these commands and instruction something that was relevant thousands of years ago, but not relevant anymore in this day and age. They're just as relevant in this day and age as they were thousands of years ago. These commands and instruction are there for our good. And if we really stopped and thought about it, we'd see that clearly. If we want to avoid natural consequences and heartache from sin, we need to know, first of all, what the commands are in God's word and, and, and know what the instruction is. And then follow them. Not only know what they are, but then follow them. Follow the commands and instruction God has already, in his grace again, given to us to follow. 
In some cases, trouble in our lives is not because of knowingly harboring sin or because we keep following through with sin, but something that God allows to happen in order to grow us spiritually. Think of it in terms of muscles. If you don't use your muscles, they don't grow. What do they do? They shrink. They atrophy, just like the man in our passage before he was healed. Muscles only grow if they're worked out. And faith will simply not grow if everything is just easy coasting. Faith will only grow if it's tested. And it will only be tested if we go through trials and troubles. God is God and obviously knows this. So he uses trials and troubles in our lives to grow and build our faith and trust in him. I refer to this time and time again, but we all probably need to hear it <laughs> time and time again. The Apostle James writing, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So, let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. There's always a purpose to it. There's always a reason for it. In all cases of discipline and faith growth, it hurts. All right, let's just be honest about this. It hurts, but it's all ultimately what's best for us. And so, in an odd turn of thinking about everything that happens in life, we are to welcome this discipline. The author of Hebrews states this very truth. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Going back to our passage this morning, we get the feeling that this healed man doesn't get it all the way, though. He doesn't understand all this. As soon as Jesus confronts him about his sin, verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Okay, so let's see what's, what ends up happening here. Instead of heeding Jesus' warning, this man turns around and goes and snitches on him. Not wanting to deal with the Pharisees' potential wrath in the future, he goes and throws Jesus under the bus. What a guy! You like to have him as one of your friends, right? Right. <laughs> Looking at this guy's responses all the way up through this one, it doesn't seem like this guy ever puts his faith in Jesus as Savior or King. This is a very real human experience right here. There are a lot of people who see God working. They see him providing for them. They may even experience a miracle happen, and they still never put their faith and trust in Jesus for their salvation. Why? How does that happen? How can someone see all this proof of God and still never put their faith and trust in Jesus? You want to know why? Because they don't think they need him. They don't think they need him. 
They don't think they need someone to save them from their sin because they don't think their sin is all that bad. Just like with the man in our passage this morning who experienced Jesus' miracle firsthand and up close and personal, but never took the sin that preceded his health condition seriously, there are many who will never take their sin seriously. And if one doesn't take their sin seriously, they will see no need whatsoever to repent. And if one doesn't repent, then God's word says very clearly that there will be no salvation for that person and that they will experience the same fate as the one who mocked and spit on God their whole lives. Salvation always and must start with repentance. Like we talked about last week, it must start with recognizing just how serious our sinful state is and knowing we need, straight up need, Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf to save us from that state. Then and only then can we take Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf for our own personally. Then and only then can we ask God for forgiveness of our sin and receive that forgiveness. And then and only then can we become a part of God's family, receive eternal life in heaven with him, and be given the Holy Spirit to make a home within us and empower us to live a life for God. The Pharisees, upon hearing the snitching from this guy, go and confront Jesus over their claim. He was breaking the Sabbath laws by working on the Sabbath, verses 16 through 17. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, hey, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now, to understand verse 17, we have to first read the, the, the first verse we'll take a look at next week, and that's verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's exactly what Jesus is getting at in verse 17. And we can see that clearly in verse 17. As noted by one biblical scholar, Jesus is saying that, hey, all right, let's just stop and think about this for a second. God is always working. He never takes a break. Granted, he took that first seventh day off in order to give the foundation to the Sabbath, but he's been working ever since. Every day, babies are conceived and born. Every day, the universe doesn't fall apart. And every day, God is working out his plan and orchestrating different events to happen in the world and in our lives to accomplish that plan. And so for Jesus to say, I am also working, is a blatant statement that he is also God. Just as God is always working and moving, Jesus is always working and moving. Now, why wasn't Jesus breaking the law by not only healing someone on the Sabbath, but also telling the one healed to pick up his pallet and walk? 
Because as we discussed earlier, the original law was meant to prohibit business work or household chores on the Sabbath. It had nothing to do with not exerting any effort whatsoever for any reason. Those were rules the Pharisees tacked on. The rule Jesus broke was not the one God originally came up with. The rule Jesus broke was their rule, a man-made rule. And what was the point of the Sabbath anyway? It was always meant to be a gift from God to his people to have a reason to take a day of spiritual and physical rest and refreshment to start the week again. It was never meant to be a burden. It was never meant to always be looking over your shoulder and never exerting the tiniest amount of effort for fear you were breaking the rules. That is what man had done to turn around what was supposed to be a gift from God into another burden. Since Jesus was doing God's work in healing and telling the healed man to pick up his pallet in order to show, show proof of that miracle, he was really only affirming the purpose of the Sabbath as a day set aside to worship God. Now, one might have the good question, is Sunday for Christians or the Lord's Day the same day and idea as the Jewish Saturday Sabbath day? Well, yes and no. While the commandment of the Ten Commandments that commands Israel to keep the Sabbath day holy, that is the only commandment of the Ten Commandments to not be reiterated in the New Testament. And you can look that up. It is the only one of the Ten Commandments to not be reiterated in the New Testament. And as Jesus says elsewhere, he is the fulfillment of the Sabbath day and what it was always supposed to be. Remember, what was it supposed to be? A gift of spiritual and physical rest and refreshment. And what is the gift of Jesus in one's life? A gift of spiritual and physical rest and refreshment. Since we have Jesus, we no longer have to keep the Saturday, Sabbath day, as it was originally commanded. However, what do we have? We have the first day of the week, Sunday, the day on which Jesus rose from the dead following his crucifixion and death, which became known as the Lord's Day in the New Testament. Before the closing of the New Testament, we already see evidence of the followers of Jesus in the early church gathering together on the Lord's Day instead of the Sabbath to read, listen to, and be taught God's word, pray, sing songs of worship together, and give to God's work. That's why we continue to gather together as the body of Christ on a Sunday, the Lord's Day, the day of the resurrection, to worship God and to receive spiritual refreshment. Because Jesus has fulfilled the meaning of the Sabbath and the church is the body of Christ, we are commanded in the New Testament to gather together for this spiritual refreshment, for this instruction, worship, strength, and power especially, as Hebrews says, we see the end times approaching. Being a part of a church and gathering regularly as much as possible is not only an act of obedience to God, but it's vital to our spiritual growth. 
It's vital to our faith. It's vital to the strength to stand strong in the face of evil. If we can, it's also a good idea to borrow from the original gift of the Sabbath day to take time off of physical work to also physically rest on the Lord's day. The Jewish people in authority of Jesus' day saw, were using, and were enforcing the gift of the Sabbath in a completely wrong way, similar to the connection of our opening illustration this morning. But at the same time, we should see, use, and enjoy the gift of the Lord's day as much as we can. Other followers of Jesus simply cannot enjoy the Lord's day the same way we can. They huddle in secret and in the dark for fear of their authorities busting down the door and hauling them off to prison. And that's the least of their worries. Torture and death are also very real dangers in places of the world simply for being found out that you are a follower of Jesus. So, what's our excuse? What's our excuse? Do we see the Lord's day and being in the house of God as the tremendous gift that it is? Or is it an afterthought? Or only when convenient. We have the immeasurable gift here in America, right now at least, to enjoy this gift as much as possible. May we all take as full advantage as possible of the Lord's day and all the gifts that are included in it. Physical rest, yes, but gathering together with the people of God also saved only by God's grace and Jesus' blood for worship, teaching, faith growth, spiritual refreshment, strengthening, empowering, and the movement of the Holy Spirit in order to live this life in courage and the boldness of the gospel message of Jesus towards this fear-filled, dark, and hopeless world. There may be a day coming very quickly where we lose the gift of freely being able to gather together for this worship and empowerment. Even then, we'll have to still make it happen, even in the face of persecution, imprisonment, and even death. So much more must we gather now, especially as we see events unfolding all around us for the setting up of end times prophecy. Jesus is still always working as God in our lives. So we too must be doing the work of God's kingdom. I want to close with these verses. Don't close your Bibles yet. I want to close with these verses. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. How can we do that if we're not gathering together? And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. You see everything unfolding in the world right now. It's not for us to be fearful 
about end times prophecy unfolding before our very eyes. For Jesus says, when you see these things happening, look up, for your redemption is drawing near. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the wisdom that it gives to us, the hope that it gives to us. I pray that if there's anybody here who uh, is going through a rough time, that they take a look at it and see, well, is it because I'm harboring sin in my life? If not, then this is God uh, growing, just growing, strengthening, stretching my faith. In any case, Lord, I pray that we would look to you. And I pray that we would take advantage of the tremendous gift we have right now of being able to gather together on the Lord's Day for encouragement, for strength, for empowerment, especially as we see the day of the Lord drawing nearer and nearer with each passing day. Give us the strength to stand firm for the truth in Jesus' love in the face of evil and ever-increasing evil in this world. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.